My daughter, Stacy, my brother, Danny, and my 38 first cousins agreed. Yeah, do it. Write them down. Then we won't have to listen to you tell them anymore at family reunions. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with director, producer, and native Arkansan, Harry Thomason, about his book, Brother Dog, Southern Tales and Hollywood Adventures. Most of my stories about Washington and Hollywood won't be found here. I'm saving my adventures in politics and entertainment for a future edition, or maybe just to pour my grandchildren with. We'll see how this one goes. Harry Thomason and Brother Dog on Arts and Letters. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Down the street, up the road, this town is small for a worldly soul. I got a dog for a brother, I got BB gun dreams, I got an uncle in the war, and a fort in the trees. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with producer, director, and now writer, Harry Thomason, about his book, Brother Dog, Southern Tales and Hollywood Adventures, published by Parkhurst Brothers Publishers. I was fortunate to have been born into a huge multi-generational family, both Thomasons and Meanses, where everyone loves and looks after everyone else. My 13 aunts and uncles and their spouses were all smart, enterprising, with big hearts and open minds. My little brother Danny and I, bundled against the cold, played on the sidewalk near the house with our guard and always faithful companion, Ted. Other people thought of him as a dog, but we knew he was our brother. The table's gray, the pink wall paint. It's not that I won't, it's more like I ain't. The book is named Brother Dog because when I was born, my grandfather gave me this bulldog, and the bulldog lasted, and I loved this dog, and still do, until I was a senior in high school. I got a young boy's mind, and it's crystal clear. I can see the whole world just standing here. It's a Well, the impetus for writing the book was my wife has always said, and I can, and she's the writer in the family, not me. And she said, you ought to write those things down, you know, and I never would. And she just kept pressuring me and pressuring me. And finally I said, okay, it's time to do it. And so I wrote them down and, and I tried to double check each one. I, I, I found myself proofing each one to make sure, now, can you back this up in court? <laughs> I'd been in Washington too long and around politics. So right. I wanted to make sure I could say something that was true. And so uh, the ones that are in there, I checked them all out and I seem to have the facts right.
brother Dog is about growing up in Arkansas and some of his adventures and misadventures in the film industry. His dog Ted, brother Danny, and Killers on the Road. And yet we always return to the warm stove and Formica table in his mother's kitchen in Arkansas, the center of it all. Brother Dog, True Tales, and Hollywood Adventures on Arts and Letters. Harry Thomason, Brother Dog, Southern Tales and Hollywood Adventures. Welcome to Arts and Letters. Well, thank you for having me here. So I got to see you at the Clinton Center, and you told some just amazing stories. And what I kind of like about this is that it's a series of tales that are connected in some ways about your life growing up in Arkansas and then your life in Hollywood, but always coming back to the idea of, of Arkansas. Well, it always comes back to the idea of Arkansas because Arkansas has always supported me, and it's been great. And so almost any good thing that's happened to him has been because of something or something in Arkansas. And so you're right. This tale doesn't go much into my television career after I got out here or into politics. It's just about what it's like being a kid growing up in Arkansas, where and when we grew up. How long did it take you to write it? You know, it's a fairly short book, and it, it didn't... It didn't take all that long because I just wrote about stuff I loved and things I remembered and things people uh, reacted to. So it was not as tough as I thought it would be, but it, it was pretty tough because I don't consider myself a writer. I can tell them orally. I'm more of a storyteller than a writer probably. And so I just sort of connected them in a timeline together. I, I, I have to jump back and forth a couple of times, but mostly they're just year after year after year, you know, starting from when I was five years old and can, can remember what my mother's kitchen looked like Yeah, and all the women sitting around worried about the war. So tell us about where you grew up and those childhood days kind of in your, your mom's kitchen. My earliest childhood memory is of my mother's kitchen. Down a short hallway, I wake into the smell of eggs and bacon as dawn was breaking. I could not only smell, but also hear the sound of eggs and bacon frying in her big cast iron skillet. Early on, I took it as a sign that I was lucky to have my parents and to live in this house. Soon after waking up, I rolled out of bed, headed for the kitchen. Turning from the small gas stove, resting her egg turner on the skillet rim, Mom hugged me and said good morning. My dad, sitting at a large, chrome-legged, dove-gray Formica top table, folded the newspaper he was reading to give me a hug. The table was the center place of the kitchen. It was where every visitor ended up. The kitchen was floored with a dove-gray linoleum, and the walls were a pink, flowery newspaper. Mom was running a little ahead of her time, of the pink and gray period of the 1950s. I got a young boy's mind and it's crystal clear. I can see the whole world just 
You write, as an adult working in the business of storytelling, I've seen the power of observation, truthful reportage, even in drama, and reflection. These stories are the principal reflections of an old man who has found magic and occasional profit in telling tales that audiences bought tickets or tuned in to follow. Well, that's right. I mean, yeah. that's exactly that's I don't exactly think you're such happened. an old man. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm pretty old, but that doesn't make any difference. I'm planning on I. You know, my work is what I love to do, so I can't imagine retiring because if I retired, I'd still just do the same thing anyway. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with writer, director, and producer Harry Thomason about his book, Brother Dog, Southern Tales and Hollywood Adventures. We'll be back in a moment. This is Arts and Letters. Let's continue our conversation with producer and director Harry Thomason about his book, Brother Dog, Southern Tales and Hollywood Adventures. I woke up in the early morning, stumbled into the kitchen to the smell of my mother's bacon, and preparing for another day in the first grade. My dad slurped his coffee, unfolded the newspaper, and read. My mom hummed as she stirred a pan of oatmeal for me. Nothing's wrong, son, everything's right, that's what my mother said. My brother's name was Danny, and my brother dogs was Ted. Something was different. They seemed distracted, listened to KRLD, the radio station in El Dorado, a much larger nearby town. There was a killer running loose up in Texarkan and the fear had spread around. We were scared to death and we held our breath, but the killer went along unfound. Old town of dreaded sundown. Soon I heard the news reporting last night's attack on the young couple. Texarkana, Texas, 1946. On a chilly February night, Jim and Mary Jean were talking in Jimmy's car. It was a lonely road and a dark night. They never saw the man coming. It starts interestingly with the killer on the road. Uh, you know, most people are sort of shocked by the way it starts. They think they're going to read this this uh, book of just getting nice, happy, and the first thing they read about is a killer. But that is still so vivid in my mind that I had to start with it because it's the first thing other than the few things about what my mother's kitchen looked like and about all of those women that were married to soldiers and, and you know, and, and then the, the next thing I remember, there's somebody that quite a ways, I mean, you know, over 50 miles from my hometown, there's somebody murdered. And, you know, and then another one murdered. Suddenly the door was jerked open and the intruder, a burlap sack over his head, two slits for his eyes, was screaming, get out of the car now. Network television was... Not in this part of the country then. It was just everything was getting underway. But the news stations, I mean, radio, which you can always tell a better story on radio than you can on. I mean, they were talking about this person, and they named him the Phantom Killer that was operating in Texarkana. And soon, it had terrified everybody. And I read in one piece of research that it terrified everybody from Oklahoma City to Shreveport and South Arkansas and, and Little Rock. The Phantom Killer. Where everybody goes to hide 
So stay away from lover's leap And don't you go to sleep The phantom killer is on the crawl Everybody was terrified, though it was many miles away from them because nothing like that had ever happened. They went out into the black night. The intruder beat Jimmy with his handgun. What sounded like gunshots to Mary Jean was really the sound of Jimmy's skull being cracked by the pistol handle. The man then assaulted Mary Jean, but fled as without warning, a car approached. Yeah, and you always keep saying to your mother, this is happening in Texarkana, and she's like, don't worry, it's pretty far away It was far away, and because the first one was in Texarkana, Texas, and, you know, the next one, I mean, the city is separated by Main Street, you know, in the Texas and Arkansas, and and so I thought, well, it's in Texas, it's okay, but then I walk in, and she's listening to the radio, and something has happened in Arkansas, so suddenly it springs much closer, and it's much more terrifying. And, and, you know, and so we'd be out in the yard talking before, and as soon as it got dusk, our mothers would make us come in, and, and that, that hadn't happened before. When we'd go to bed at night, we'd see our fathers put a shotgun under the bed, and in the morning, I would get up and walk in that same kitchen that I loved, and my mother would be listening to national radio broadcasts, and they would always be talking about the latest development in yeah. the Phantom Killer. Right. And so it was terrifying, and pretty soon, the movie in my hometown, it quit showing. It had the 7 o'clock showing. That was it. There was no 9 o'clock showing. I think that movie not, was The Killers, too. Yeah, because may, maybe people would be out and, uh, and something yeah. happened to them. Mary Jean and Jimmy were the lucky ones. They lived that February night. Most of the unnamed intruders other victims were not going to be so fortunate. And I go to bed at night with a gun under my pillow, too. Except it's a cat pistol, and I don't think it's going to be a very big deterrent should the, the Phantom Killer come to visit us. And that was it. No more killings. The circus left town, and the murders faded from the news. America was left with a new phrase in its vocabulary, serial killer. Did they ever catch the Phantom Killer? They never caught him. They think they know who it was, and I think I know who it was. But it's interesting. Because of this, somebody had talked to the Texarkana Police Department, and I haven't had a time to read it. And so they've released over 2,000 pages of information about the Phantom Killer and everything they had. And so I haven't been through it and know what it means or anything. But it's funny. we This book succeeded in getting the info released. Nothing's wrong, son, everything's right, that's what my mother said. My brother's name was Danny, and my brother Dogs was Ted. Ted the Dog, the, na- the <laughs> book is named Brother Dog, because when I was born, my grandfather gave me this bulldog, and the bulldog lasted, and I loved this dog, and still do, until I was a senior in high school, and so my brother... And my, my younger brother and I both, I mean, we loved this dog and we were around him. And uh, one time I'm looking out the kitchen window in the morning and the kids are all over there. I think it's recess. And so I decided to take Ted and stroll on to the school ground, which I did. And you were little. I was small. I was five. I was not in school. And so I walk on the school ground with Ted. And the first thing I know, I'm sort of attacked by a kid, you know, and 
oh, you're you're not supposed to be on here. You and you know, and uh, Ted didn't like the way the guy was treating me because he had sort of jerked me by this. And so Ted got the guy by the pants leg and started dragging him across the school. <laughs> it was, I'm sure the, well, he was frightened. He's dragging him across the school ground. I turn around, the kid's in my face again. And I, and you know, and I start pushing back and push, and I look. And both of them look exactly alike. So it was my first introduction to identical twins, <laughs> the Abel's twins, which I later became friends with. Right. And so a teacher saw it all going on, and she jerked us all up and took us into the principal's office. And the principal's office had glass around, so you could see into it. And all I remember seeing, and the principal was very good-natured, and all I remember seeing was I was looking back at the glass and seeing Ted up on the glass with the paws up on the glass, <laughs> looking in to make sure everything was going to go okay. And the teacher said, these kids have to be disciplined. They were fighting on the school ground. And the principal says, well, I can discipline the twins, but this one is not old enough to go to school. I can't, and I can't do anything about the dog, so you might as well take them across <laughs> the road to home now. And she was shocked, and she did. That's just like, it's a wonderful story. On the Saturday before Christmas... I went into the kitchen to find Mom looking out the window. She turned, gave me her usual hug, and said, Here, let me help you up so you can see out the window. She lifted me to the countertop, and I looked toward the school. Daylight was breaking, and a dusting of snow was falling. The school ground was full of tents, trucks, and soldiers. They had stopped late in the night and set up camp on their move toward the East Coast, headed for Europe. By now, the soldiers were stirring around, getting ready to fold their tents and move out. I immediately got Ted and headed once again to the school ground. The soldiers were very friendly, welcomed me, talked to me, patted me on the head, and asked if I wanted to go with them. They asked about Ted and told me he was a fine, great-looking dog. I felt good and headed back to the house. As I glanced at the kitchen window, I saw Mom smiling. She had observed it all. You know, you're growing up, and and then in the town, there's there's Patty. And, there's Patty, and so and Patty was kind of at that point, quote unquote, the <clears throat> town drunk. Every day, I mean, my parents owned a little grocery store next to the school ground, and and you know, and every day, my brother would be out in the yard playing of the house connected to the store, and Patty would come down the sidewalk on his way to town in the morning, and he would always speak, and and he would be perfectly okay. But at night, just as dust fell about every night when he was walking by and we were out in the yard playing or something, he could barely walk and he would be staggering. He would actually go to town and go to the bars and get drunk and then uh, make his way back home. And But he was always friendly and always smiling and so forth. And, and, you know, and so we liked him. And so we just decided we wanted to give him a Christmas present. And my mom said, okay, I have, I have some socks in here wrapped for just that. And so we got the present. And we went out, and Pat is on his way to town in the morning. We knew he was punctual, so we knew what time he would come by. And so we're out in the yard, and we're waiting for him. And when he comes by, we we say, Patty, and he says, oh, yeah. And my brother says, we want to give you a Christmas gift. And we gave him a little, little gift. It was, not a, it was just wrapped in wrapping paper and so forth. And he just looked at it and studied it, and then his eyes filled with tears. And I'm sure ours did, too. 
Mm-hmm. And he just he just looked at it. He said, "I just thank you so much. I thank you." So it's probably the only Christmas present I'll get this year. And he continued his journey to town. And we didn't think anything more about it, you know. Just as we see Patty coming back down the street from town, and Patty's carrying a big box under his arm, and you know, and we notice in my uh, the first thing that he's walking straight and he's not staggering. As he approached, we noticed that something was different. Now, from a distance of years, we might have been wrong, but it seemed like he was walking a little straighter. Maybe he was even a little bit taller. He stopped in front of us and smiled. In that moment, Patty seemed unfamiliar. His ratty clothing was familiar, a conscious double on his chin registered, but the smell of alcohol seemed somewhere between faint and non-existent. He was definitely not as inebriated as he had been when he headed for town that morning. I brought you guys Christmas presents. He handed each of us a box. We eagerly opened them, finding the biggest collection of fireworks ever assembled. You name it, two-inch bombs, rockets, sparkers. If you can imagine it, it was there. Danny, I jumped into light, almost spilling the contents of our boxes. Thank you, Patty. We love these. The tears started again and streamed down his face as he spoke. I just can't believe somebody loves old Patty. Somebody loves dear old Patty. We took it and, you know, and we thanked him profusely. And then he just said, I, I just thank you because it's nice to know that somebody loves old Patty. Yeah. And then he walked away. I didn't think about it. I mean, and I don't know if it's connected or not. I wouldn't be so. But several days later, he was walking down the street and he wasn't drunk when he's walking home again. And then my parents started noticing that Patty was beginning to way cut back or quit the drinking. And then uh, later he got, he was sober and he got a job working at the, Calhoun County Courthouse as a janitor. And then over the years, I went off to college and, and so, and then eventually so did my brother and everything. And, and we read about a celebration that they're having for Patty Oliver, the head of maintenance for Calhoun <laughs> County. And, you know, and they're having a big, he's retiring party and they have a big party. The mayor signs a proclamation and it's a big deal. And I just thought, okay. Yeah. That was worth a package. Sure was. That was worth a package of sauce. Patty wobbled down the sidewalk, bleary in the eyes. He like lick away early in the day. Danny and I gave him Christmas socks. Now he walks a bit more straight. Come to learn it's never too late. This is Arts and Letters. Let's continue our conversation with producer and director Harry Thomason about his book, Brother Dog, Southern Tales and Hollywood Adventures. We came under fire one Saturday morning in our foxhole playing board. As the bully shot, there came a cop and with the bully telly sword. Told him better stay indoors. Now tell a story in the book about uh, when we decided to play war and we took our <laughs> BB guns and dug a foxhole. Right. And so we dig this foxhole, and we put the dirt around the edges in this open field right across from my house. It's Charlie Pierce, myself, and a couple other of my, my uh, friends. And, you know, we all take our BB guns, and we get in a foxhole, and it's like we're in World War II, and we're playing. And, and suddenly the dirt flies up. And Charlie Pierce said, was there a gunshot? 
And so one of us sticks our head above the thing and the bullet, and we hear it thump into the dirt and dirt flies up. And we hear somebody laughing hysterically. And, you know, we get down and, but now we're doing what seven or eight year olds do when that happens. We're in the foxhole crying. This is more war than we wanted, you know. And before long, we're pinned down in the foxhole and he keeps firing. And, you know, and pretty soon we hear this woman across the way that lived in another house almost. She said, young man, you quit shooting at those boys or I'm going to call Sheriff Duncan. And Sheriff Duncan was a well-known sheriff. had been sheriff forever. And she had threatened to call him. But the guy kept laughing. The kid kept laughing and shooting at us. And pretty soon we see Doyle Duncan's sheriff's car fly around the corner uh, up behind the guy. And he jumps out of his car. This is all in one motion. He jerks the kid up by his belt and takes the rifle away from him and throws it back over toward his car and pulls off his belt. And he gives this kid about the worst whipping I've ever seen with a leather belt. And after it was over, he said, now you get your gun and you get to your house. He he lived about a quarter mile away. And don't you bring this gun out again for several weeks or you're going to be in trouble. And the kid gets it and starts home. And, and you know, and this kid never had another break with the law. I never had another brush in of any kind and became a highly successful businessman. And I think, okay, justice will serve. We came under fire one Saturday morning in our foxhole playing war. As the bully shot, there came a cop with the bully deli sore. Told him better stay indoors. This is Arts and Letters. We're talking with producer and director and now writer Harry Thomason about his book, Brother Dog, Southern Tales and Hollywood Adventures. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with Harry Thomason about his book, Brother Dog, Southern Tales and Hollywood Adventures. You know, we were talking just about, you know, just these moments of not only serendipity, but I think, I really do think there is paying it forward and it comes around. I just really <laughs> noticed that in this. It's this idea that always try to do your best to help people succeed because who knows when, A, right, they'll sure. be able to help you, but also it's just, it's and who knows how it'll change their life. Riding shotgun in a company truck to Cleveland by way of so in the summertime, we would go work for this group in Louisville, Kentucky, and they roof places. And I, we roof the things that hold the gold at Fort Knox. We roof Churchill Downs, you name it, and we put the roof on it, really. But we'd go there, and we were only 17, 16, and 17 years old. And, and uh, But they were, in the summer, we'd go. We'd stay in Louisville and move to the, whatever the next job location was. And this is the incredible thing. We're 16 and 17 years old, and we're driving a crane that will reach 10 stories. I mean, it's big, and the truck is big. But we're the drivers. We move it from position to position, even though that would be crazy. You know, sure. they just trusted us, and we had driver's license. 
And then you didn't have to have a specialized driver's license. And so we're driving through the night to reach the next location, and, and there's this guy standing on the side of the road. A flash of lightning reveals someone on the shoulder of the road ahead. Jerry saw him. A hitchhiker in the middle of nowhere. Should we stop for him? Let's do it. Each summer, we made our way from Arkansas to Kentucky, thumbs out, hitchhiking, hoping some good soul would carry us closer to our destination. We knew what it was like to be in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night. So we get the guy in the truck, and he tells us he has on a he has on a jacket that says Camp Quantico, uh, you know, Marines and so forth. And he tells us a little about his life in the Marines, and he's actually been overseas during the Korean War, or the last part of it. We rolled on throughout the seemingly endless night talking. Jimmy had served in Korea as a U.S. Marine, but didn't seem to have much inclination to tell two naive teenagers about his war. It became obvious that the war had affected him greatly. He talked about the many Veterans Administration hospitals with which he was well acquainted. He asked us about our families. We told him all good things about all good people. We got almost nothing back except that he grew up in West Virginia and hadn't been home since he left for Korea. Looking much older than his 31 years, he'd been a drifter since his discharge. Jimmy thought he might go to California someday because, as he said, California's always warm and I'm always cold. Jerry asked if he was looking for a job. Nobody's going to hire me. Why? I'm just plain worthless. And so we start riding, and, and when we get to where we're going, by daybreak, you know, uh, we walk out and we tell the our supervisor, uh, the guy who was Jerry's uncle, actually, and we say, listen, we found this guy on the side of the road. And uh, we know he's had drinking problems because he smells like he's been drinking everything. But we believe you ought to give him a job. And he just made fun of us. That's not going to work. This is hard work. And he's not going to last. He's going to leave within a day, you know. We, well, let's just try it. Made it to Cleveland. Talked to the foreman. Said he won't last a week. But he gave room and board. And we all got cussed. We moved into a rooming house, I mean, uh, which was basically bed and breakfasts before they were bed and breakfasts. And we got him in there, and the next morning he was pretty drunk when we took him to work. And he had to ride a crane to the uh, top story of the building, and the guy in our Jerry's uncle said, oh, this guy's going to fall off the building. You guys oh, have got to watch. But he made it through the day. And we worked because the tar sticks to your feet once it gets hot. So we would go to work at 5 in the morning or so and work till noon. And then we were we quit for the day because it got too, too hot. hot. And so he lasted through the day. And uh, Jerry's uncle said, guys, get used to it. He's not going to be back tomorrow. 
But the next morning we got up and there he is. He's ready to go again, you know. And he doesn't smell like he's been drinking now at least, you know, and he's had a shower and and everything and we go to work again. He's a hot carrier, which means he carries hot tar and buckets across the roof and to fix the roof. It's a hard, hard hard job with a lot of, and he makes it through. And uh, Jerry's uncle said, well, I'm shocked, but he won't be back tomorrow. But anyway, he continues. He makes it for an entire week, gets a check. We all got paid Friday, went out Saturday. We go out to a movie on a Saturday night, late Saturday night, Jerry and I did. We come home. Then on Monday morning, we get ready to go, and we're and Jerry and I in one room, and he's in another, and the guy wakes us up. Jimmy ambled into our room, all hangdog, and sat on the edge of Jerry's bed. He might have been drinking. His clothes always reeked of beer and alcohol anyway, so he might not have been drinking. Damned if we could tell. I called my mama, he said softly. Jerry grinned. Great. And did she say you were worthless? No. What did she say? She said she loved me and missed me. In the dim light, we saw his eyes glisten. That's great. Yeah, Jimmy replied as he stood and moved to the door and paused. Yeah, that's real good. He walked out and we had trouble going back to sleep. We slept in. Finally, we opened the door for breakfast and noticed something hanging on the doorknob. It was the Quantico Marine jacket I loved. Hanging out of the pocket was a folded piece of paper. Reluctantly, Jerry unfolded it, and I read aloud, Sorry, going home. That was it. Nothing else. And Jimmy took off and never gave us a reason. Yeah, Jimmy took off and never gave us a reason. Charity. God's living conscience putting you and me. You must attempt it for your come to see a time when even you need charity. I don't know if he made it or not, but I know he was sober when he left. And he said, I know you've admired my Quantico Marie's jacket, Harry, so I'm going to give it to you. Where? And so I did for years. And I hope he made it home. And I just always imagine his mother seeing him come up because he lived out in the countryside. I just seeing him come up the road toward her and what that must have meant. So it's beautiful. So, but I never, we never heard from him again, of course. Charity, you and me. I wore that Marine jacket for years in respect of all the other gymnasts crisscrossing the blue highways of our country trying to find their way home after a war. Jerry became a respected physician in our home state, and I became a high school football coach before drifting into the film business. We could never decide if Jimmy was drunk that night. I like to think he wasn't. Always imagine his mother looking out her kitchen window as the sun rises over her West Virginia home. Suddenly, she sees her son start up the long path to her house. Her eyes well up with tears. The dish rag she holds falls onto the dog's head. 
the screen door slams behind her as she breaks into run to embrace her little boy, Jimmy, the prodigal son. I never met Jimmy's mama, but that's how I'll see it whenever I remember Jimmy. You know, we have something in common. I was a high school teacher, too. Oh, you were? Yeah, yeah. and um, I know you kind of started out as a high school yeah. coach and, and teacher. teacher. Right. It was a brand-new school when I first got there, and I had a the principal and the superintendent that was unusual, and he assembled an unusual group. Of, I mean, he came and recruited my wife and I, which my first wife, Judy, and he, he came and he recruited us from South Arkansas. said, well, I want you to come to this school. And we came huh. up. He drove us through Bear Woods where they were just putting in a foundation. said, you'll be over at the old Mableville School one year, wow. but then you're going to move to a new school. And he recruited the faculty. And uh, he brought us all in there. And I read something on the Internet from a person that was an ex-soldier the other day on Facebook, and he was saying, about his life, and, and he's old now, too, you know, because we were all, we were very young when we started, and our students weren't much younger than we were. And he said, I, I was in the Marines and said, other than my commandant, I can only think of one group I would ever follow, and that would be the McClellan High School faculty. Wow. And, and he named the year, 1964, 1965. And I believe that's right. And there were several war heroes on that faculty, too. Wow. But uh, So you were there in 60? 60... I was there uh, 64 through 66. Okay. Yeah. Four. And you were a coach? Uh, football. First, I went back to my hometown and where I did coach basketball. If you say but, you were a football coach, but you were teaching? Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. This same guy called me in and said, Harry, uh, we want you to teach a class. And I said, okay. And they said, well, the superintendent or the principal did. He said, but I want you to take these kids, and some of them are going to be troubled. And, you know, but I want you to take them and you teach them about anything they want to learn about or you want to teach about. Wow. It was the best class I've ever no taught kidding. by far. I was able to do, if there was something interesting in a paper, that's what we would do. We would study it and we would do it. And, and you know, and I have to say, it improved these kids. There's something that's not in the book. Uh, they were still, some of them were, they weren't troubled. I mean, they might be considered trouble today, but they weren't. I mean, you know, and so the vice principal, who was rather picky, called us in, and another couple of the coaches called us down to his office one day, and he said, okay, the guys from Harris class, we I had girls too, but mostly guys, said they have stolen a bus, and they are at Minuteman. You know, which was the famous <laughs> restaurant here then. And they said, and we think they're on their way to Minuteman. And we said, okay, we'll go get them. And so there were three of us. And uh, and we headed, and sure enough, we it was a Minuteman was then on the like the corner of Tower Springs and, and something. I forgot what street it was. And we go up there, and sure enough, we see the bus sitting there. And we go inside, and there are these kids, about nine or ten of them, and they're having Minuteman hamburgers and enjoying themselves. <laughs> and so we say, okay, guys, you got a minute to finish and then line up to get on the bus. We let them uh, finish, and they came out, and as they got on the bus, the other coach, he swatted them with a paddle, oh, and they got on the cab, and we said, now follow us and drive the bus back to school. And they did, and, got, and you know, and that, again, that was it. 
you know, yeah. they never did it again. It was an adventure for him to talk about all their lives, and we disciplined them. Have you ever found out that you can't live without a thing? That some fellas trying to sell you, trying to tell you that it's really clean. Now you bought a with his preparation, but with some guilt and determination, you might convince yourself So I'm imagining you're, you know, you're the football coach, but at the same time, you, you love story and you want to, you kind of want to make That's movies. True. Well, they might, we did play. I did, I did several plays at McClellan. I'm oh, you did? Good plays. And, uh, so you, you know, directed one was the, theater and around and I directed one. You know, it's funny when I was a, a, a high school teacher and I directed the plays too, um, the football kids, although they generally couldn't act that well, they were always punctual and they would always That's do what right. you say. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and That's like right. if you needed group scenes, they were That's there. Right. Yeah. That's right. There folks out there, beware, it's not you all that's got their eyes. No, it's the notion of the power they can glean if they just steal your mind. They'll convince you that it's yours. Wondering how you got in line. All right. 1966, Little Rock. I love coaching and teaching. I love the coaches I coached with and the students I coached and taught. It was a good life. At the time, I thought I would never leave it. But after six years, the close-knit staff I loved was breaking up for other jobs and graduate schools. I was torn. I'd always been a photographer and part-time artist interested in film. If I was ever going to pursue those interests, 1966 was the time to do it. Pursue, I did. I decided to go into the advertising business. The opportunity presented itself in a crazy way, but I was ready for the challenge. My first step was making ads to sell products on television, commercial. It all came to a head in the middle of track season. After practice each day, I would sketch storyboards for various imaginary projects. The storyboard laid out in graphic format what a television commercial for a product might look like in a series of frames. If I were doing a commercial for television, the story would be my visual shorthand for the concept, frame to frame. Almost daily, the other coaches offered comments on the work. But I was stymied at how do you move from coaching high school track and football to producing commercials or anything that would actually be broadcast on television. I had no idea. One early spring morning, I read in the Little Rock newspaper that the president of a national insurance company, Frank Whitbeck, was planning to run for governor of Arkansas. Naively, I thought he should use me to do his political commercials. The article named his ad captain, the Brandon Agency. Um, so... Tell us about the best dressed film crew. Well, that is let, just let me a tell you, phenomenal uh, story. you know, that's the way I started. There was a guy named Jim Brandon. His wife was a, a famous Arkansas Democrat Gazette reporter, Phyllis Brandon, who died not long ago, but they had been divorced for many years. Uh, Jim Brandon had moved to Washington, but he had a call the Brandon agency here when I was getting ready to leave McClellan because the head coach was going to a college. And uh, I had a chance to go to 
northeastern Oklahoma as an intern to work on my degree. And uh, we were all leaving, and I decided, well, if I'm ever going to get in a film business, this is the time. So I had a degree in art, so I drew some storyboards of some spots, commercials, that looked pretty good because I'd read in the Arkansas papers I, this guy, Frank Whitbeck, was going to run for governor. He was the president of a big insurance company that was based here, actually. And so I found out that the Brandon agent was handling it, and I go downtown to the center downtown there, and I go in his office, and I have these storyboards. It's a Thursday afternoon, and we're having a track meet the next day, so we didn't have practice that day. And I go in, and I tell his secretary who I am, and I want to talk to Jim Brandon about maybe I could do the spots for Frank Whitback. Now, that's a ludicrous story <laughs> when you think about it because I tell her I'm, I'm just a football coach, you know, but I want to do that. And she later became a stewardess for American Airlines, and I run across on American Airlines. Uh-huh. Then she became an executive at American Airlines. And she said, you don't know Jim Brandon, do you, because he's, he's cranky. You know, and and I said, well, I was just hoping for a chance to talk to him. She said, let me go talk to him. And she was beautiful and tough. And, you know, and so she walked to his door, walked inside, shut it, and I could hear all this shouting (laughs) going back and forth. And then in a little bit, it all calmed down, and she walked out and just sweetly said, Mr. Brandon, we'll see you now. (laughs) And so I I go in, and uh, Jim Brandon says, you know, you're just wasting my time, don't you? And I said, "Uh, maybe, but I said, I want to just – tell you the deal. And I showed him the spots and he said, well, those spots look pretty good, I must say. And he said, but why in the world would I hire you? You're a football coach. And I said, because I talked to my uncle who has a little money. And he said, if you would even hire me to do one of them and you didn't like it, that he would give you your money back. And he said, and you're sure you'll do that? I said, oh yeah, he's, he's well known and you can check him out. And he said, well, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to give you, you get to do one spot, you know, for Frank Whitbeck. And you get him Saturday morning, and you get him for three hours, and that's it. So I say, okay, and I go back to the school. I assemble the coaches, and and I tell them, <laughs> guess what, guys? We're going to be a film crew. And they all agreed because that's just the kind of guys they were. And I knew enough about what each person did and so forth, and I'd explain, you're going to be – the key grip and you've got to operate the camera and and we just went through the spot just piece by piece and what everybody would say and do and we rehearsed till about 10 o'clock and then we went downtown to a place that no longer exists because of video tape but there was a place in little rock that did all films from around three or four states they would process the game films on thursday night and friday night they'd work all night and you get your film the next morning and so we went downtown and explained to them, and after they quit laughing, they agreed to loan us a camera and mainly to show us how to load it. Because in film, if your film loop is not right, it'll make the film jerky. And so I think that was the hardest part. We had to practice over and over. If yeah. you messed that up. If you mess it up, yeah, it was fouled up. Right. And so then on Friday, I went out in the afternoon and I found a place to shoot out toward Benton. And the next morning, our client was there at... Uh, like eight o'clock in the morning and we were just beautiful playing with white fences and horses galloping in the fields. He's sitting on the fence just talking about why he wanted to be governor. But the thing I did is that night, on the Friday night before we started, there was a Kmart at Asher and University Avenue. And so I went to Kmart and I found these beautiful green silk t-shirts with gold trim. Come to think of it, they must have been Notre Dame shirts and I just didn't realize it. But uh and so I bought everybody on the crew one, and then I bought them these black baseball hats. 
And I went back, and we met again that Friday night to rehearse what we're going to do the next morning again. And I gave them all these things. And I have to tell you, that was the first and the last well-dressed film crew I have ever in my <laughs> life seen on any stage, anywhere, anytime. Have you ever found out that you can't live without a thing? That some fella's trying to sell you, trying to tell you that it's really clean. Now you bought a with his preparation, but with some guilt and determination, you might convince yourself this is the thing that you really need. <laughs> so it was a beautiful sight. And then you got there. We- we got there. Uh, you had the to guy, be nervous. Oh, oh, absolutely. We were nervous, <laughs> but it worked. And as soon as the guy left, I mean, we rushed the film down to Ray Chris Films downtown, and they broke us in line, process of him, and we stood at the end of the process watching it come out. You know, we could see an image, but we couldn't see much. But at least we knew we had an image, and we looked at it and and uh, cut it together over the weekend with their help. And then I took it and showed it to Jim Brandon, and uh, he said, well— this is unbelievable, but it's pretty good, and I'm going to hire you to do the rest of them now. And so that started a long relationship with the Brandon Agency, and, and so he lost, and he, di- he didn't win. But some years later, I'm speaking to the National Insurance Association. Why they chose me, it was right when Clinton had been elected president, and they knew that my wife and I had played a part in it, and so they asked me to speak. And there were about a 1,000 of them. I'm a friend, I'm a friend, I'm a friend. And they just want me to tell about my career. So I'll tell a lot, including this story. And, you know, and as soon as it's over, this other guy steps up to the microphone. And of all people, it's Frank Whitbeck. And, you know, and Frank Whitbeck turns to the audience and says, Harry, I never knew any of this. If he knew That would it. be great. <laughs> yeah, right. And the audience just went crazy. They And they said, and then somebody said, oh, that's not true. And he said, no. It's true. I never knew it till tonight that this was the guy that shot the stuff in their first film, first. first film, first everything. So um, the last question I have is um, which, and I don't like to use the word favorite, but maybe which is the most telling story in here? Um, the one that kind of, because you, I'm sure you, you, you've told a lot of these, and I get the sense it's funny with, with your wife that she's like, please write these down because oh, I don't right, want to hear right. them again. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I'm wondering which one maybe, um, if someone were to say, Harry, you have one story to tell from this book, which one would it be? I think it would have to be the Patty story. Would it? Because it just affected me. It affected myself and my brother over a long period of years, and it was just, just made few. you smile at the end, no matter... Yeah. What do you think? You are smiling. I believe every one of us has a story to tell. When you have finished reading mine, you may just have an epiphany. Hey, if this guy who's not even a writer can write a book, I bet I can too. I bet you can too. We're an old boat now, get on the road. 
box of socks for my patty bun. Jumping in the foxhole, deepening in the night hole. Ain't life funny when you run with Brother Dowry. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. Thank you to musicians, singers, and songwriters. J.D. Wilkes. The Phantom knows where everybody goes. Thank you to Jesse Wells for the beautifully inspired music. Thank you to Joseph Fuller of Orchestra of One for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Shack for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to producer and director Harry Thomason for taking us back to his mother's kitchen in Arkansas and for weaving tales around that formica table for Ted, his brother dog, and the rest of us. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed these words from Harry Thomason. If you maintain enough persistence for long enough, Doc will pay you a visit. This, our hundredth show, is dedicated to Joel Anderson and in memory of Ben Fry, who both started us on our journey. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.